Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the federal government will release a fiscal statement. What does that mean to us during a global pandemic? Where is Canada and its COVID-19 vaccination schedule? What do we know now? What does COVID-19 mean for the next hockey season? Didn't we just finish the last one? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Go, son. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Can you believe the packed shopping malls over the weekend? Apparently, you can still get a great deal on COVID-19. Woohoo! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Doing that one live. Home from school today. And Friday, PD Day. All right, uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as we enter, uh, nah, never mind, uh, week number 38. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, Facebook and Twitter. You'll also find the podcast edition of the commentary there. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, and the phone lines are always open. Uh, rain, boy, lots of it out there. Uh, very, very soggy day. And as uh, the day progresses and the week progresses, uh, slowly going to turn into winter. And uh, we got some snow on the way. So uh, it is and it will be beginning to look a lot like Christmas very shortly. Lots of people I notice around the neighborhoods have uh, got their lights up already, uh, which is great to see. All right, uh, Michael LaCourture from Global News has uh, this report, talking to Aaron O'Toole, conservative leader, and vaccination during, a, or sorry, um, having an economic update during the middle of a pandemic and what we can expect later this afternoon. After months of demanding a full accounting of liberal spending, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is seemingly shifting his focus. My top priority is a plan for vaccines. There there is no plan for the economy if we don't have rapid testing and vaccines as swiftly as possible. The pandemic will likely be the central theme of the economic update. And while the Conservatives have supported the bulk of federal relief measures, O'Toole is hoping for some restraint from the finance minister. So I want to see if she remains in that same view that she can spend uh, without regard to the public finances as long as interest rates are low. I'm hoping that's not her fiscal anchor. All right, that was Michael Couture uh, with uh, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. We'll talk about uh, everything COVID-19 related, business, and of course, a economic update. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm just fine, thank you, and glad to be with you. So before we get into the economic update of this afternoon, your, your thoughts about where we are as, as, as far as a vaccination. Obviously, the Prime Minister uh, creating a firestorm for himself last week when he mentioned that uh, when asked by a reporter uh, why the United States and, and Europe and such were, will be getting their vaccine ahead, uh, vaccinations ahead of ours, he very, uh, very plainly said, and as if we all knew it, uh, that we don't make these anymore, so we're going to have to wait behind everybody else. And and I think a lot of people were stunned with that information. And now it seems we're trying to get some sort of clarity. Your thoughts on where we are with this situation with getting a vaccination into the arms of Canadians? Well, there's a, a couple of things here. First, what the Prime Minister said, he's absolutely correct. Uh, we used to have capabilities of doing vaccines in Canada. In fact, there was a crown corporation that did vaccines. And then under the Mulroney years, that was privatized because, of course, the government shouldn't be into these sorts of things. And then ultimately, when Stephen Harper was prime minister, that company was sold to somebody else and they shifted the production to another country in the world. So that didn't really come as any news to me. I knew we didn't make vaccines anymore in this country. Now, what the prime minister has done is he's talked to, I think it's now seven, it could be eight companies that are working on vaccines, and he struck deals with all of them to bring the vaccines to Canada. Now, last week, um, 
Mr. O'Toole and, and Mr. Polyev stood up in the House of Commons and said, when? Give me a date. Give me a date. Tell me how many. And he says, wait a minute. We haven't even got one of them approved yet. We've got hopeful news from Pfizer. We've got hopeful news from Moderna. There's a vaccine that's being developed with the University of Oxford, which is very hopeful. But none of them have actually been approved. And even if they get approval in the United States, of course, Health Canada has to do its own approvals. So we actually don't have one, uh, you know, that we can say is ready to go. And then when we do say it's ready to go, they've got to be mass produced. Now, in terms of where we are in the line, if you're a producer of a vaccine in the United States, there is no way you're going to say to Americans, love to, love to vaccinate you folks, but I got to help those people in Canada first. So we're kind of second in line. We're not at the back of the line. There's 186 countries in the world, and we're not back in the back with the dead last one. Well, we'll be more in a second wave after those home countries in Germany, in England, in the United States. They vaccinate some, not all, but some of their population first. So I think rather than seeing the vaccine distributed in Canada in December, you'll see it more probably uh, February, March, in the first quarter of next year. And then the question is, who gets this, uh, both in terms of what provinces? So every province wants to know how many doses, how many doses. Well, I, I don't know how many I can get. Therefore, I don't know what your share is going to be. And then how are you going to deploy it? We think they're going to deploy it to uh, healthcare workers first, people on the front lines. Then we'll be talking about vulnerable populations like those people in long-term care institutions, the people who care for them. I think for the average person on the street, you're not going to see vaccines until at least the second quarter of 2021. But when people want specifics, you, you know, it's a bit like asking me what I'm going to have dinner tonight, and when I open the fridge, there's nothing there. It'll depend upon what I buy and how fast I buy it and how fast I get it done. We don't have all those answers just yet. But again, we would ask you then, Marvin, so when are you going to the grocery store so we can fill that fridge up? And then you'd say by later on this afternoon, and then we'd know when we're going to be eating. And on the approval front, from what I understand, uh, the FDA and the Health Canada are are virtually going to approve this at the same time, maybe a day or two lag or or a few days lag. Uh, But from what I understand, the the approval process will not delay this in any way, that uh, Health Canada is on on track to approve this roughly the same time uh, that the FDA will. The problem is we don't have production, we don't have distribution, we don't have, as you said, we don't have the product. So uh, obviously there's other countries that do, and we've heard of places like Brazil and Mexico and such. What other countries are in the same position that Canada's in, and how are they handling this? Well, I'm not sure they're handling it any differently, but I would think like a Spain, a France, I don't believe they have domestic production in France or Spain. Portugal wouldn't. I don't think Italy has. Uh, other large countries. But apparently uh, all of the European Union will be getting it at the same time, roughly. Well, that would be, again, you know, one of the great things about being part of the European Union is that could very well have been a decision of the European Union because they are this commonwealth, if you will, of nations to make that decision. But then somebody like Switzerland, do they have their own because they're not part of the EU? Or Sweden, uh, excuse me, Norway is not part of the EU. Iceland's not part of the EU. Where would they be? So, you know, I think, I think we're going to be close to the front. We're just not going to be in that very, very first wave. I believe you're actually going to start hearing about the United States distributing vaccine before New Year's Day here in 2020, but we're not going to be in that wave. All right, let's talk about the uh, economic uh, statement that is coming later on. Uh, Is there anything we can predict here? (laughs) I'm sorry, I wasn't expecting quite the question that way. So, no, um, Chrystia Freeland uh, and for that matter, any government, it's very, very difficult to give you with certainty what the budget's going to be for the year ahead because we still don't know where COVID is going to go. You might remember three weeks ago, our provincial government uh, brought down what was supposed to be a budget. But if you read it closely, they had three different scenarios. You know, here's scenario one, if COVID goes this way, here's scenario two, here's scenario three. And you say, well, so what's the deficit? Well, it depends upon which scenario is reality. And I think that's some of what Christia Freeland's going to do. She can tell you certainly what they have sped up to now and what they think they're going to be spending for the next three, four, five months, get us to the end of this fiscal year, which happens on March 31st of 2021. So she should give you a better sense of that. And I think you're going to hear that the deficit has gone up again from $340 billion, maybe to 360, 365, 370, something like that. But I think what she wants to try to do is set a tune 
excuse me, for what 2021 is going to look like. Uh, the liberals in their throne speech, this was when they re- recalled Parliament, had talked about some sort of a national child care program. The NDP, who uh, are sort of the party they lean on for support during this minority parliament, have suggested they want to hear about a framework, a framework around a national pharmacare program. Neither of these would happen in the next two, three, four months, but they would be things you'd see going forward uh, as part of this recovery program. Now, lots of other people out there, when you hear the Prime Minister talk about a greener economy, well, what does that mean? So will we hear something today about investments in green energy? Will we hear things about investments in infrastructure? And will there be dollars attached to those things? So for the opposition party, specifically Mr. O'Toole, whatever she says today, they can jump all over, because I guarantee you there will not be lots and lots and lots of specifics. Lots of nice words, high-minded verbiage, but if you want hard dollars and cents, it's just not going to be in there. So for, for the conservatives, they'll be able to jump all over the liberals for the next three weeks on this. But it's still intended to give you some sense of the direction and some sense of what a rebuilding effort in 2021 might look like. Uh, obviously, six months ago, we didn't know what we were in, what we were doing, or, or what this was even going to look like. Now we're talking about vaccinations. Uh, you know, still lots of questions surrounding those, but we, we do have a rough idea when they will start to arrive through January and March and, su- and such. Uh, so we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So will we hear more back? Uh, we he- will we hear more about building back better and and what that vision is for uh, the, what the prime minister's vision is for the country, or are we still up to our knees in, in COVID nineteen? So nothing like that now. Well, no, I, I think he'll give you at a very high level what building back better means to the liberal government and the things that they want to fund as part of this but it's going to be short of timelines. And again, I want to be really clear about this whole question of vaccination because you raise a great point. There's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's more of a fog or a haze at the end of the tunnel because even though we'll start vaccinating people, let's say in March or February, March of next year, uh, you know, how many, how, how do we get to 70%? That's what they call herd immunity. 70% would be on the better part of 25 million vaccinations. I think that's going to take most of 2021. The, don't take my word for it. The Bank of Canada, looking into this crystal ball, doesn't think the economic recovery can begin until 2022 because they think it's going to take most of next year to get everybody vaccinated or get at least get enough people vaccinated. We can get herd, men, herd immunity. Um, now, we certainly contracted for enough doses. When you hear the prime minister, I think we've contracted for something like 300 million doses. Well, we don't need 300 million doses to vaccinate everybody. But that, you know, again, you bet on many different horses. Whoever can get the doses here first, we're going to start administering them. But I think, you know, in the first half of the year, it's still about COVID. It's really the building back starts in the second half of 2021 and probably begins to accelerate as we get closer to 2022, basically a year from now. Um, obviously, uh, there's lots of drug companies in Ontario. There's lots of drug companies in Canada. I wouldn't say lots, but they're certainly, they're here. We can see them. Uh, that being said, is it conducive enough from a business standpoint for, for those companies to do the vaccination R&D? Uh, you know, I mean, they, apparently we even do our own flu shots and such here. So, uh, is, you know, many people talk about how, uh, free, you know, free trade and, and so on and so forth and opening things up back in the 80s and 90s uh, and such. But are we uh, are, are we doing enough to see these sorts of businesses that produce these vaccinations uh, set up shop in in Ontario, in Canada? Is it conducive for those businesses uh, to, to, to stay here rather yeah. than leave? Let me let me split split a hair with you here. So certainly in Canada we have some of the best hospitals, the best medical researchers, and all of the major pharmaceutical companies do have research programs based here in Canada. And Hamilton is no exception. Uh, 
Population Health Research Institute, a very important part of Hamlin Health Sciences. They do trials that are, are seen globally as being very, very important. So we have the research to do the background research. What we haven't had is the manufacturing. And part of it is because we're a really small market. 37 million people sound like a lot, but if you could set up here or set up in the United States where you got 350 million people, you fish where the fish are. You're going to have your plant near those, and then you'll treat us as a more marginal market, and that's why we haven't been here. Now, I suppose if, if the prime minister wanted to make a statement today that we are going to reestablish this infrastructure, uh, then the question would be how do we lure a drug company to reestablish manufacturing in Canada? Probably we got things like tax rates for them. We might have other incentives uh, the way we do with the car companies to bring some of this back. Uh, might even require some investment on the part of the federal government and maybe a province or two to lure them back in. Certainly in the, on the world stage, other countries who want these things lure large pharmaceutical companies with all kinds of incentives. But in terms of a market, I think we're good. You know, we negotiate, we pay. Um, I don't think anyone has a problem serving our market. It's just a case of do we want to set up manufacturing in a relatively small country? One of the advantages when you set up in Europe is you instantly have access to 500 million people in the European Union with no trade boundaries between you. Again, the more we are tied to other free trade packs, we can make the same argument here. I just think when it, when it slipped through our fingers, when this manufacturing capability slipped through our fingers, nobody really thought it was going to be a big deal. Even when we had SARS, we never got around to trying to inoculate the population. We never developed a vaccine. It went away. So we kind of got lulled into a false sense of security. This is maybe a good thing that it shocked us, and it will be interesting to see if Christian Freeland and or the Prime Minister talks about let's let's bring back this capability, and then if we do, let's make sure we never lose it again. So is this all Mulroney's fault? <laughs> no, I don't want to. I never want to blame it on one person. There is a philosophy around crown corporations, and it does tend to be held by conservative parties. But just because it's not a crown corporation doesn't mean Air Canada, for instance, is not a crown corporation. But we have a Canadian-based airline, and it's it's functioned quite nicely. Uh, so I'm not sure I'd blame it on Mulroney, or I'd blame it on Jean Chrétien, who could have reversed this, or Stephen uh, Stephen Harper, or whoever who could have reversed these things. It, it's just you know, at that moment, we didn't think we needed it. So when it slipped through our fingers, nobody sounded a warning sign. No one envisioned this kind of a scenario of a pandemic. Remember, it's been a hundred years since the last pandemic. I was only two. You know, I don't have very good memories of that time period. So, <laughs> so you know, we tend to get lulled in these false senses of security. I think, though, is a great reminder. And just as you heard the Prime Minister and Premier Ford talk about, let's make sure we're our own PPE, that we are making our own PPE. We've gotten used to importing all the masks from China and other large manufacturing centers. Now we're saying, well, there's some advantage to having this here in our backyard. It's a learning experience for everybody. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks so much. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister announced at a, uh, at a news conference when asked how come the United States and other countries and the European Union and such uh, would be rolling their vaccination uh, uh, programs out starting before Christmas. Uh, for Canada, not till the new year. And he very nonchalantly said, well, we don't produce these anymore. And naturally, the other countries are going to do their own first. And then, uh, you know, worry about uh, us later. And of course, that landed like a lead balloon. And a lot of people were completely surprised by that statement. We have seen what has unfolded uh, uh, in the wake of all of that. Uh, Moderna over the weekend coming out and saying that uh, it will have, uh, I believe, 20 million doses of the vaccine for Canada that it is bought uh, and that it is uh, towards the, the, the front of the line. However, we're hearing that uh, there was uh, a lot of time and effort put into uh, some sort of agreement with China, which uh, in the end fell through. So it's hard to know exactly what is going on and, and when we will uh, have Canadians getting vaccinations. Uh, at this point, January to March, 
uh, hopefully for uh, 6 million doses by then. And again, two per person, so that translates to, you know, obviously 3 million people. Uh, let's bring in Tom Koch, Professor of Medical Geography at the University of British Columbia and author of several books on the issue, include, including Disease Maps, e- uh, Epidemics on the Ground. He is with us now. Tom, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Not bad, thank you. So can you bring any clarity to what's going on with the vaccination discussion that uh, we're having over the last week or so? And, and any idea uh, what has happened and, and where, uh, when we can hope to, to have this uh, in everyone's arm? Well, everyone's arm is a big task. What's happened is that the government, intelligently, I think, made a number of agreements with vaccine producers when they were in development, saying, if you get it and if this works, we want it. So, for instance, Moderna said uh, that actually Prime Minister Trudeau was wrong, that they Canada had signed up early with them and would be towards the top of the list of, distri- of distribution. Now, all of these drugs coming, all of these vaccines coming online first have to be approved and reviewed in the literature by the Canadian uh, by by Canadian officials, and that's good, and that may change the timeline. We all remember that there have been times when we have rushed or put forward drugs or vaccines or uh, medications which were approved elsewhere, but turned out to be in the longer term disastrous, and that's what these studies are going to try and eliminate. There was thalidomide, of course, most famously. Mm -hmm. But remember that the SSRIs like Prozac and the other drugs for anxiety and depression, which were thought to be a miracle drug and worked very well for some, and a small percentage of the population created the opposite effect, suicidal depression. So these things have to be well vetted. And Canada is right in saying, we want to take our own look as well as trusting the look of other people. And that means going over and looking at the populations of who was inoculated in these studies. Did it include infants? Did it include children under 12? Did it include at-risk seniors? All of these are different demographies which might have a different take on how this will affect them. So that's just a necessary part of what people like to call today due diligence. And if it seems as if it's delaying, it's delaying for a purpose, which says better to take... But, but, but let, me, let, let me interrupt you there, Tom, because sure. from what I understand, the Health Canada is going to approve this roughly a little bit after, but roughly the same time that the FDA is going to approve this. So there really is, the, the delay is not really to do with, from what I understand, uh, to do with approving. Yes, of course, we have to approve it. But apparently, uh, the the Health Canada is getting that information roughly the same time that the FDA is. So, from what yeah. I had heard last week was, you know, by the time the FDA does okay this, which is pro- obviously going to be before Christmas, uh, that Health Canada will be very shortly after that. That that's not the reason for the delays. Uh, the reason is for the delays is production and distribution. That will be a cause, and. Yes, we will be getting the data about at the same time as the FDA does. That is when the companies release it. But that doesn't mean necessarily that we will be in full agreement with the FDA. So that is just something to watch out for. And that is something we just don't know yet. Might there be something in our review or the FDA review of any of these vaccines? And we have two at the moment on the, on the diving board ready to, ready to plunge. And there will be two or three more after in the next month, which makes us cautious. The other question is, uh, there's been a lot of questions, well, why can't we produce them ourselves? And what you have to remember is that these, are, these two coming forward are new technologies, the yeah. messenger RNA, and we don't have production facilities for that. Why we don't have a more robust policy in Canada for the production of vaccines and for research here is a long story. Linda McQuig tells part of it on the Connaught Laboratories, which we can't go into here, but the fact is we don't have the facilities now. So the Trudeau government took the step of optioning for distribution and now has to set up distribution policies within our governmental system. In the United States, 
President Trump has made this a federal responsibility and brought in the army. In Canada, this will be much more a provincial responsibility, and each province will be setting up its own program of getting the vaccines being allocated to them and then using them in the population. And that's going to be a big task. And that's going to take time. What about, um, and do we, how much information do we know about this vaccine uh, agreement or arrangement that China and Canada was working on and that, uh, I guess, in the end fell through? I don't know that much. I haven't seen the data. I haven't seen the agreement. I assume it was similar to what Canada has had with some of these other companies, which is, if the vaccine works and if it does X, Y, and Z, then we want to put in a pre-order for it on the condition that these things are occurring. So my understanding is, although I haven't seen any of the literature, that the vaccine that the Chinese were working on is not yet ready, has not been tested to that degree, and therefore it isn't so much, it's, it's, it's in abeyance. I'm not sure it's fallen through. It's just not around at the moment. And there and, will be, in the end, about probably at least five or six vaccines, which are which will be coming forward in the next six months, including the two that we have now. So how are other countries that are roughly in the same situation that Canada is, how are they dealing with this situation? Because from what we know, uh, again, this process, these rollout process are going to start before Christmas in the in the United States, in the U.K., and in I, from what I understand, all of the European Union, uh, talking about Spain, Brazil, uh, Mexico. So what is it that those countries have or don't have that Canada has? And, 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 and what are other countries doing that are in the same situation as Canada? Okay, I'm not an immunologist, so I'm not absolutely clear on all of these. I will say that many of these countries have done what Canada did, which was set up either licensing or procurement programs uh, for one or the other of the new vaccines. But there's a long road between when you get them and when you distribute them. And each one of these countries is going to have to have a different process for the distribution in their own territories. So when it comes to Mexico or to Brazil or to Venezuela, well, not to Venezuela, is one thing when and how it is distributed by those countries, either in a national or a provincial or, or federal provincial program, is going to be another whole bag of tricks. So what we will see, just like with many vaccines, is that many of these countries are going to have slightly different mechanisms once the drug is procured at a central site for its distribution. This has often been a problem when we've had, for instance, in 2009 influenza, in the United States, there was a major imbalance between the location of drug supplies state to state in relation to the number of people uh, who were considered most at risk, seniors. And so what they had to do was sort of shift supplies from one state to another so that it would be maximally distributed for those most at risk. What uh, so? What we know so far is that Canada will start receiving uh, their shipments January to March, hoping to have six million doses—that's three million people—vaccinated uh, by the end of March. Uh, obviously, you know Canada's population—that's less than ten percent. So obviously, that would go to um, uh, vulnerable people and those that are on the front lines talking about hoping to get more uh, of the average person done by September. So how would that control the spread? What can we expect to see as far as handling this virus with that sort of rollout? Well, let's just remember that that is the first part of the rollout. Presumably, there will be, with these vaccines, later distributions after that initial one, and that the number of people who are vaccinated will begin to increase. What we can expect is that the more people who are vaccinated, the more people who are less likely to get COVID, then the potential for transfer will be reduced because the population at risk will be, re- will be reduced. We can expect early on, if in fact, 
fragile seniors in uh, nursing homes and people in other high-risk locations are at the top of the line, that the burden on the greater health system, which we see now, for instance, uh, uh, capacity ICUs, will be decreased because those people most at risk will not be getting the uh, the worst cases of the inf- uh, of, of the viral infection. So we can expect from the start a decrease of the pressure on the health system based on how many people get it. Mm-hmm. And we can also expect that slowly we will be building up a population's herd immunity so that the virus will have fewer and fewer people to go to. So obviously we're at a stage now where many are feeling very fatigued with all of this. Uh, we've seen, um, you know, blowback from regulation and masking and so on and so forth. Um, you know, and, and many thought that once we started a max vaccination process that, you know, things would get back to normal relatively quickly. From your standpoint, how realistic is that and, and what will this uh, what will this flattening of the curve and this slowly getting back to normal look like or what the new normal is? I think we'll have a pretty good Christmas next year in 2021. Mm-hmm. The difference between this pandemic and going back a long way to plague, going back to cholera and the rest of them is we are in a society which expects a much more instant turn and change. We expect really mm-hmm. unrealistically too much of our medical and our political systems. This will take an enormous amount of time. This will take a lot of challenges. What we do about those people who say, I don't want to wear a mask today, I won't take a vaccine tomorrow, but who will still show up in the ER, is another question we have to ask. So I would expect this to begin to have effect, psychological but also real, into the spring. But I would suspect it would be at least the fall before we begin to actually begin to see a sufficient relaxation that we can begin to not have COVID be the daily story on every radio and TV station and every newspaper <laughs> across the nation. Well, that we be have nice. to remember how absolutely complex both the issue of the vaccine itself has been, and it's extraordinary that we have something almost ready, but also then the distribution in a society where there are a lot of people who, for one or another reason, say they don't believe or they don't trust or they don't want, but they still want care and they will still be carriers. And, you know, even with a perhaps slower rollout of this than what people are expecting or what they want, uh, at least the good news is as we get into spring, people then at least start to get outside a bit more. And, we're you know, we won't be dealing with the same thing that we are now with uh, in stage two uh, in the second wave, rather, where people are, are, are going indoors. Not. And also remember that the virus is doing what viruses always do as it progresses. But the more people who are infected, the more people who recover, those people we believe will be, at least for a period, resistant to another infection. So the population which can get and transfer will slowly diminish because our numbers have risen as they have. It is not yet at the degree to which we have a protected population, but that is part of the way the virus always works. That sooner or later, it dies out because we have lost we, we have a sufficient population which is immunized, which has been uh, had the disease and survived and are protected, and that will hopefully last and that will contribute to all of this. So there's good news, but just don't expect everything to happen and come together tomorrow. It's not like ordering toilet paper from Costco. <laughs> So uh, where we are, considering where we are and how we've gone through this, uh, obviously, you, you know, you, you've spent your life studying this sort of thing. Your thoughts on where we are at this stage and where we hope to be by next fall? We're in the third quarter coming from behind but catching up. Yeah. In a four-quarter game. And that's pretty good, given the realities of the situation we're facing. 
And once this vaccination is available, how will it change our world? Well, that's something we don't know. Will we remember the lessons of this pandemic? Will we we begin to basically pay more attention to preparedness for the next pandemic? And there will be another one or epidemic. Will we begin to assure better care and better living conditions for fragile seniors and for people in the poorer communities who have been most affected by the virus? And we have an immense amount of data on the social and economic inequalities and that the relation of those to viral incidents. Or will we forget it all and try and go back to thinking about the way things have been? That's up to us and to our political representatives, and that's something we should be asking our representatives as this thing begins to wane. What lessons have you learned, and how will we improve ourselves because of it? Well said. Tom Koch has been with us, professor of medical geography at the University of British Columbia, author of Disease Maps, Epidemics on the Ground. Tom, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Vote for me for prime minister. I'll fix it. (laughs) All right. We will. Let us know. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of stuff going on right now. As we speak, uh, the uh, the tent city is being dismantled at City Hall. The city has issued trespass orders uh, for those who have been camping out in front of uh, City Hall, demanding that the police be defunded uh, and the funds be used to affordable housing. Uh, and now we're wondering that, you know, obviously due to COVID and, so, and issues like that, uh, how how safe certain protests can be, and if this contravenes pandemic rules and regulations. Uh, obviously, organizers and people involved uh, have been fined. Hugs over masks protest over the weekend uh, took place in the same area, and again, uh, charges laid there as well. All right, let's bring in Kara Zebel, or sorry, Zwiebel, uh, Director of Fundamental Freedoms at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and is with us now. Kara, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. So how do you protest safely during a pandemic? Um, Well, I think, um, I mean, there are certainly ways to protest um, in, in, you know, in ways that do respect many of the public health orders. I think that the, um, I mean, the challenge is obviously, um, you know, with respect to the the defund the police protest, I think um, the kinds of safety measures that they're, you know, prepared to engage in are obviously likely pretty different from the um the hugs over masks protest right so i think there is a difference if you're if you're actually protesting the the public health measures then um you know you may be engaged in acts of civil disobedience uh to 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 take on that protest but um if that's not what your protest is about then i i think that there certainly are ways to um you know to keep people distanced obviously um you know masking is it um, might be important, although, again, in an outdoor context, we haven't really been told that that's something we're required to do unless you're going to be um, sort of confined with a, with, you know, with, with a group of people for an extended period of time. So, um, I mean, I think there are ways to do this safely. And I think we saw that earlier, you know, during the summer when we had a lot of the anti-black racism protests. Um, mm-hmm. Which you know, which which happened for the most part with um, with really minimal sort of. Um, engagement by the police, except maybe in um, in the province of Quebec, but generally in Ontario, um, those protests were, um, you know, the, the rights of those protesters were respected by police. You know, you bring up an interesting point, though, during a pandemic, and always, you know, obviously we talk about people's rights and their uh, freedoms to protest uh, as long as they're within the confines of the law and so on and so forth. But then you think, of, you forget about, gee whiz, if we are in the midst of a pandemic, then those people could be endangering other people's lives. So all of a sudden there's two sides of this coin. Yeah, I mean, there's always, um, I, I think with protests, even, you know, even outside of a pandemic context, there are always... Um, competing claims and issues, you know, people, people raise concerns that protests, you know, think of blockades, that they, um, they inconvenience people, they cost people money, they disrupt businesses, they disrupt lives. Um, But in, you know, in many ways, that's really what protest is about. That's um, why it's protected, because Mm -hmm. it, 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 it is meant to be disruptive in many cases. That's how you, you know, you get attention for your issue. That's how you um, sometimes get 
the decision makers to to engage with you. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, uh, I, I'm not sure that with respect to the, the defund the police protests, I, I haven't really heard that the concern is about public health. It, it seems that, you know, I, I know there are bylaws that say you can't erect tents in these spaces, and, and those are the bylaws that are being uh, sort of enforced here, but I'm not sure that that's actually related to to the pandemic. And um, and I'm not sure that it's it's necessary in these circumstances, whether it is really, um, you know, causing a public health concern or a public order concern. Um, from what I've heard, these protests have been, you know, uh, peaceful um, and, um, you know, and there is... Um, there is some symbolic importance to, to the tents when you're talking about a protest that is talking about, you know, homelessness and the need for, for people to have adequate shelter. Yeah, and I think that's where the obviously where the the issue is is um, is is erecting the tents. Which, mm-hmm. and I should mention that we have obviously reached out to the city of Hamilton. They're still dealing with uh, the dismantling of the tents at this point. So uh, hopefully, have someone to speak on this uh, later on today uh, or tomorrow. You know, I remember when they were redesigning uh, the new Hamilton City Hall, and one of the whole uh, reasons behind, uh, especially with the forecourt, was to d- design a a much more people friendly place where you know you could have certain things going on and and so on and so forth but they probably uh obviously didn't anticipate uh something to this extent how do you balance this a place for people to to do and congregate like this and yet on the other hand um you know uh, obviously not uh possess or, or present some sort of threat or 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 situation for the rest of the public Yes, I mean, it's a really good question, and it's difficult. I think when courts are looking at these issues and, in, in, you know, in instances where these types of things have been challenged, and the, the most, um, you know, obvious example that comes to mind is when there was the, sort of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and, and there were protests all across cities, all across Canada and the United States, um, where people were camped out in uh, often, you know, public spaces. And um, and those were generally allowed to continue for you know, for an extended period of time, um, eventually they were dismantled. And for the most part, um, courts tended to agree with, you know, side with cities and say this isn't something that can go on indefinitely. Um, in some ways, actually, the pandemic context um, arguably actually strengthens the case for allowing um, tents because this, these are not public spaces where the normal uses are are competing quite as much, right? We're not having, you know, music festivals. People aren't um, aren't supposed to be out and about and congregating. Right. And so, in in some sense, there is, um, you know, potentially an argument that, uh, that 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 there should be a bit more allowance for this um, for this kind of this kind of protest. So what happens, um, you know, again, obviously the issue becomes one of safety once people start erecting tents and living there. Um, again, how do you balance that? Because that's clearly where, you, you know, they, they step in to take things down. Protests, fine. Um, you know, tents, not so much, obviously. Yeah, so think- go ahead. But you said, like, as you said, that certainly does draw attention that gives uh, you know, the, a reason for people to, to, to look at the cause. Uh, so your thoughts on all of that and, and balancing that with, you know, defining this, this group define, wants to defund the police by 50% and use that towards, uh, public housing and such. You know, at, at what point do you, do you say, okay, the point's made and, and move on? Well, I mean, that's with regard, really, with regard to tents, with regards yeah, to settlements. I, I, think, I mean, that's, that's really for the, the, the activists that are involved in that movement to decide. I think, you know, that they know what their goals are and they're, they're the ones that are in a position to decide whether those goals have been met or whether they've sort of gotten the attention and the, the ear that, or the, the ears that they need, um, on the issue. Um, I, I think that it, it is always, um, and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that you said you're, you know, you're hoping to speak to someone from the city because I think it really is always incumbent on the, the government, the, the, you know, the or the police, whoever it is that's at the um, that is involved in restricting this this right to protest to to justify it. And it and it it can't, in my view, just be that well, there's a bylaw that says you can't do this. I think you you do have to consider the the individual circumstances and say. Um, you know, is there really a need for these tents to come down right now? Are they actually posing a threat? Is there genuinely a public safety risk? Or is this just a matter of, 
you know, well, the law is the law and this is what needs to happen. Because I, I think there can be, you know, allowances made just like there were allowances made for, you know, larger um, than larger gatherings than were technically permitted under the, the public health guidelines during the, the anti-Black racism protests. So those protests, there was a recognition that this was an issue that a lot of people cared about, that they wanted to um, to take to the streets and have their voices heard. And, um, you know, and the fact that there were technical violations of, uh, you know, of certain orders didn't matter so long as there, there weren't real threats. To, to public health or public order, and, right. and so in this case, I'd you know I'd want to know what it is that the that the city is relying on to say this does pose a threat. Um, I think that it's it, you know we are as an organization, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is is not um, saying that you know the rights to protest and to express yourself have no limits. But what we're saying is that when the government is imposing those limits. You know, they have to justify them and, and explain why. This well, I think like, you know, and again, the situations that have happened around this city and, and other cities that the longer they stay, then the more they become entrenched, the more, uh, you know, there's uh, situations for crime and, and fire. And it's just it's it's a safety hazard after a certain period of time because it's just not meant to be a permanent situation. Um, so, you know, again, I'm sure those are factors like, you know, as opposed to, well, you just, you know, they're not really harming anybody. You got to leave them there. You know, we can leave them there. And again, I can see that for a short period of time, but, but certainly as the the more they become entrenched, it becomes more of a, I I think it does become more of a safety issue. What about, you know, in this case, and, 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 you know, we've certainly seen post George Floyd, um, great discussion in regard to, uh, racism, uh, systemic racism, and such, and and I think there's lots of people out there that want to have that discussion. Uh, then all of a sudden, well, it's you know uh, we're we're with Black Lives Matter or with whatever cause, and we want to reduce funding by fifty percent to uh, the police. Do you think once it gets to sort of those extremes that people, they bail, they're out, you know, like, yeah, you know what, there should be, as you talked about, people marching about, uh, you know, the the situation in, with Black Lives Matter or policing or whatever you want uh, to discuss. And then, you know, all of a sudden it becomes from a, a discussion of how do we do this and how do we balance this to, well, let's defund something by 50%. Do you think at that point you lose the public? Um, you know, I really, I really don't know. I think that um, there's obviously a, a group of committed individuals that are involved in this in this movement. Um, you know, in Hamilton, um, and and certainly there are um, committed activists throughout the country that are looking at this issue and that really want to to engage on it. So, um, you know, maybe it's not a position that has the the support of the majority of the public, but that's one of the reasons that you. Um, you know, you engage in protests is to is is to get people to pay attention, to get them to think about it, and and also to get a you know a bit uh, of an opportunity to to negotiate with decision makers about yeah. um, about these issues. So, what are your thoughts uh, in regard? Obviously, COVID fatigue. People are we don't need to go through that. We know how everybody's <laughs> feeling, uh, and we you know before the weekend we saw the situation at that barbecue uh, place in Etobicoke. And, you know, it sort of moved from a, you know, a guy just trying to open up and, and sell his his wares to uh, all of a sudden we had uh, Antifa there. We had QAnon. You had, you know, you had extremes on both sides of of the political spectrum and everybody sort of jumping on board. And then you have to wonder, well, is this, you know, just a case of for everybody to come out and demonstrate whatever they want to demonstrate? Or is this about the guy in his restaurant? Your mm-hmm. thoughts on how that all transpired? I mean, in any um, in any instance where someone is um, you know protesting or taking a stand and getting the attention of some media, there are going to be people and groups that will decide to sort of hop on and and see if they can um, you know um, change the direction of the spotlight in in their direction. That that I think you know it, it happens. Um, I, I think that. Um, you know, in in some ways, we shouldn't be too distracted by some of the the really. Um, we we both shouldn't be too distracted by some of these fringe groups, and also mm-hmm. um, shouldn't necessarily give them um, more attention than they they necessarily deserve. And and we should focus on the fact, and regardless of whether you you know agree or disagree with the position or with the tactics, the fact is that people who are um, 
who are protesting or, you know, taking a stand in relation to public health measures. It's it's very easy for, and I've seen, I saw a lot over the weekend of this in, um, you know, in the press where, where these kinds of protests were just sort of dismissed as, as people who, um, you know, think the virus is a hoax or people who are um, really don't care about the health and safety of people. I, I think that um, that's an easy way to dismiss this. But the fact is that there are many people who appreciate that there's a very significant public health concern going on here, but also feel that the restrictions that have been put in place by the government are excessive, that many of them are arbitrary, that they, they don't make sense, that some of them have, you know, disparate impacts depending on, on who you are and what your circumstances are, and they, they affect people very differently. Um, and the normal avenues that people have to to deal with these things, you know, contacting your MPP and um, uh, going even potentially going to court, a lot of those things are not really functioning the way they normally do. Um, you know, the, the legislature of Ontario no longer really has any oversight over the, the pandemic measures. This has become, um, these are executive orders. The, the, the government passed a bill so that they don't have to go back to the legislative assembly and repeatedly get, um, you know, uh, their approval to extend the state of emergency. They've they've ended the state of emergency, but retained many of their emergency powers. And so, when you take away some of those mechanisms, in some in some cases, you you don't leave people many opportunities, um, you know, or other avenues to deal with this. And so, sometimes it it, it spills over. And I mean, I, I saw over the weekend the the premier, you know. Um, upset about protesters who are in his neighborhood bothering his neighbors and mm. you know he's saying well they you know they can come to queen's park but i mean people aren't at queen's park right now um right it's not it's not quite it, it doesn't quite get the message across in the same way um these I got to cut you off there, Kara, because we're just plumb right out of time. Uh, Kara Zwiebel has been with us, Director of Fundamental Freedoms and Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Kara, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, they're talking about how they're going to get the next NHL season uh, underway. I know what you're saying. Didn't we just finish one? Isn't it just, hang on, I'm all confused now. This is worse than daylight savings time switching the seasons around this way uh and and lots of chatter about a canadian only uh division let's talk about that and other things sports related scott radley's with us host of the scott radley show you can hear him every weeknight right here on chml and sports columnist for your hamilton spectator scott thanks for the time i hope you're doing well doing great how are you i'm doing pretty good all things considered hey I, one other Mike thing Tyson on the weekend I, no i didn't no tell me about it well, I didn't. I, I only saw the highlights afterwards. But I'll say this: if at, I mean, he is roughly your and my age. He's fifty-four. We're in that ballpark. Uh, if I could somehow get myself to have a body that looked like his and still perform, the guy looked. The, the guy. I, I am quite confident the guy could beat some legitimate heavyweights who are fighting today, like guys twenty, twenty-five years old. Uh, Did you I, see? I, and and he says that he was totally reefed out on dope before he went into the ring too. So take away the, gee, do you know the the chill out man really? stuff? And and like the guy's fifty four, he could still fight. It was amazing. Have you seen the cover, the latest cover of uh, J Lo's new album? I have not, but I heard that um, she's not going to be fighting. But well, you know, some are lovers and some are fighters, and I'm guessing where she may be. And she, yeah, and the same, you know, as Mike Tyson, you would say. All right, uh, one thing I wanted to mention was uh, this sort of came out up out of nowhere, and maybe not if you're doing what you do for a living, but um, all of a sudden, boom, they're talking about replacing the Sky Dome. I still love calling it that in Toronto. No, it is out of the blue. It was, The Golden Mail ran a piece last week that caught everybody off guard. And you know, Scott, and maybe people listening had the same thought as me. I don't know. Um Anyone who's traveled to Europe and gone to visit the Roman Colosseum, and I realize the Roman Colosseum is not exactly in fighting trim these days and doesn't have concession stands and private boxes and amenities. But the thing is still standing and still in reasonably decent condition yeah. as an artifact. And we're talking about a 30-year-old stadium, 35-year-old stadium, yeah. that now has no value whatsoever, essentially, and has to be knocked down to make way for a new stadium. I mean, 
aren't we supposed to be the most technologically advanced and everything else, blah, blah, blah? And why are all the old artifacts and old places still standing when they had no technology? And with all the stuff that we have at our disposal, we're making buildings that are essentially disposable within 30, 40, 50 years. Which I find absolutely astounding because I remember when the thing opened up, uh, and it was, this is the best thing since yeah. sliced bread. I mean, this is the retractable roof, everything. I remember they even did a, a TV show for yep. the day that it opened. They actually had a special on TV and, and showing Thicke hosting it. Alan Thick and, and Andrea Martin were hosting the, uh, the opening show and they had roller skaters and it poured rain and they couldn't close the roof fast. Enough. I remember that was the issue because <laughs> it was raining and they, they would open the roof, open the roof. And it's like rolling down the window on a day like today. It was raining. Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, yep. it, it seems odd. And I remember hearing that, you know, the, the current owners bought it for what initially the, the, the Jumbotron was worth way back when. Because uh-huh. um, obviously, whoever built it, that's that's where the money came from. The rest was a deal. So, uh, yeah, it's surprising that something that was so state-of-the-art then is just so out of it now. I, I, I was stunned. And I'm not sure that it is that out of it. I mean, I, yes, it would cost So what do you do to purpose. it? Well, so... You're gonna. I read somewhere, and I don't know if it was that same Globe article or somewhere else. They're talking about 250 or 300 million to renovate it up to where you would want it to be. I mean, that's a right. that's a that's a lot of money. I understand. Um, however, when you're talking about a new facility, brand new, you may be talking about well over a billion dollars, and who knows about the land and that land underneath the Rogers Center or Sky Dome, as you prefer. Um, is, I believe, if I recall correctly, owned by the federal government. It's not owned by the stadium. It's at least they have a 100-year lease on that property. So even if you said, which has been talked about, that we'll knock that down, use that area for condos, make a fortune off condos, and build the stadium somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, apparently, apparently the new design will incorporate all of that, and that's also what it is. It's just a change of purpose in the sense that these facilities are built differently now. A lot of them have condo components to sure. them, which well, uh, the obviously Canada generate more revenue. Bank or whatever, where the Leafs play. Yeah. I mean, they've made, all, they've made so much money based on the stuff, not just the arena, but all the peripheral stuff around yeah. the condos, the Maple Leaf yeah. Square, the Jurassic Park, all that stuff stuff mm-hmm. so uh, yeah I, I you know I'm, I'm stunned I'm stunned that they're talking about knocking it down I'm stunned that we can't seem to build anything in the modern era that has the capacity to stand the test of time I'll uh, tell you, you know, what I'm stunned at I'm stunned at they're gonna do it and not ask for any money that's what well, I'm stunned okay. about okay let's keep your powder dry on that one Scott that, that, that's the opening salvo uh, as I say remember this land is not owned by them um, so somewhere along the way, and that land is worth a fortune right there in Toronto. So, you know, somehow I find it very hard to believe. I find it very hard to believe that when all is said and done, that there will be no ask from any public level of government or public anything, and this will be entirely done with private money. When that day comes, I will stand down and I will say, boy, I was wrong. I find it impossible to believe that will happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, th- I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll see some concession somewhere, but it won't form, it won't come in the, uh, it won't be like an LRT. You know, we need a billion dollars or we need this much money or however. Uh, let's talk about uh, the playoffs and the Canadian division. Uh, are fans going to like a Canadian division? Yes, well, y- yes and no. I-, I think in the whole, on the whole, yes because the Canadian teams right now are worth watching. I mean, if you're a Leaf fan, and I'm guessing that the vast majority of the listening audience, I know there are people who aren't, but the vast majority of the people listening right now would probably be Leaf fans. You hate the Canadians. It's a great rivalry. So why wouldn't we want to see more of the Canadian sure. play? You hate the Senators. Of course you want to see that rivalry renewed again. It's been a while since that mattered. You want to see Connor McDavid more. The Canucks are good right now. The Calgary Flames are good right now. Even the Winnipeg Jets have probably taken a little step back, but are still good right now. So you would have this incredibly competitive division with some really great players and teams that are worth watching, and it would be tremendous. Now, when I said mostly fans would be happy, because you've got so many good teams, in fact, all All right, we have lost Scott. Oh, he's back. Yeah, no, no, you're going to have all these seven teams being contending 
And that means there is going to be one or two or three really good teams yeah. that suddenly find themselves on the out, where in the normal cause, course of action, you've got some crappy teams in your division and you can get into the playoffs guaranteed. How happy are Leaf fans going to be? And we've lost him. All right, 242, Scott is gone. He's uh, a telephone issue rather than an Internet issue. Uh, Scott Radley from your Hamilton Spectator. Make sure you're listening to him tonight. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. 911.